recorded live from the lobby of the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Welcome to Black Girl Missing, a podcast that covers stories of Black girls who are reported missing when they were under the age of 18. We are exercising caution and social distancing by recording for you from our homes in D.C., Philly, and the Jersey Shore. And this podcast is brought to you by Full Service Radio. Due to the sensitive and sometimes graphic nature of these cases, we advise listeners to use caution when listening. Black Girl Missing is supported in part by New Voices for Reproductive Justice. New Voices for Reproductive Justice is a social change organization dedicated to the health and well-being of Black women, femmes, and girls. I'm Asa. I'm Feminista Jones. And I'm Nikki. We open each show reviewing cases of girls who are currently missing that we call the Aisha Alert. We encourage you to pay close attention, check our social media, and help us help the families who are still seeking answers and long for their loved one's safe return. We'd like to note that we create these lists of currently missing Black girls in real time, so by the time the podcast episodes are released, there may have been some changes. We will have information on each case posted on our social media channels so that you may stay updated. Paris Dingle is a 16-year-old girl from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She was last seen at 11 a.m. Wednesday, March 25th on the 5800 block of Warrington Avenue. Paris is described as 5'7 and 170 pounds with a medium build, medium complexion, brown eyes, and black hair. She was last seen wearing a denim jacket, black t-shirt, green pants, and tan boots. Anyone with any information on Dingle's whereabouts is urged to contact Southwest Detective Division at 215-686-3183. Denia Rucker is a 15-year-old girl from Detroit, Michigan. She was last seen on Wednesday, March 25th, at her home in the 6,000 block of Westwood Street. Denia is described as 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighs about 110 pounds. She was last seen wearing a black jacket and black jeans. Anyone who has seen Denia Rucker or knows of her whereabouts is asked to contact the Detroit Police Department at 313-596-5640. Callie Johnson is a three-year-old girl from Gretna, Louisiana. She went missing from the 400 block of Timberwood Drive on Sunday, March 29, and was last seen around 11 a.m. Callie is around four feet tall and weighs about 50 pounds with black braided hair and brown eyes. Anyone who may have seen Callie Johnson is asked to call 504-364-5300. FJ? All right. Um, I, uh, I know Paris Dingle, and um, this is, is a little bit difficult for me. Um, so thank you for that. Um, our case today is... Oh, man. Um, we are covering the case of Erica Heather Smith. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because her case was all over the news and even made it to America's Most Wanted. So we're going to kind of go into this uh, case and um, we're going to we're going to pick apart what went wrong here. 
So on the early afternoon of July 29th, 14-year-old Erica Heather Smith told her younger brother that she was going to meet a friend. She then left the family's home in Ashburn, Virginia, but never arrived at her friend's house. Erica was found dead 11 days later. She was found buried in a shallow grave in Ashburn in a wooded area close to the Luton County Parkway. Now, what we know about Erica is that for all intents and purposes, she was a regular girl. Um, she had her circles, circle of friends and she had loving family. Her parents used words like angel and precious to describe her. Uh, we know that she had siblings. Um, she was actually babysitting her younger sibling that day. Uh, she was a cheerleader. Her family was very religious. Um, in one of the interviews with her mother, Pamela, you see a lot of Christian items in the back, like praying hands and crosses and things like that. Um, at the time of her dis uh, disappearance, the sheriff's office was under the leadership of Sheriff Stephen O. Sam Simpson, and he was criticized uh, for the handling of the case, specifically because Erica was not immediately categorized as a kidnapping victim, which would have mm. heightened the search efforts, right? So mm -hmm. the office officials said that at the time they had no reason to believe there was any immediate danger. We hear this a lot when it comes to black girls, and it's the same tired misogynoir. Okay. All the time. Mm -hmm. they, it, it's either runaways or, you know, something else like that. Never want to think that a person could be kidnapped. One of our girls could have been kidnapped, right? Which I think also kind of speaks to the social currency of black girls and women and how low it is and how mm -hmm. undervalued Absolutely. we are. It's like, why would somebody kidnap us, right? Right. Um, so her parents uh, struggled and they were really, you know, understandably, like they were struggling with how little attention and effort was being put on their daughter's disappearance. When I say this, this went on for years, I have never seen a case where the parents were this committed. This was in 2002 that this happened. Okay. It was in 2012, 10 years later, that the sheriff's office reopened the case. And there's a new sheriff, you know, in charge. It was declared cold by then. Mm -hmm. The team had dedicated thousands of hours just to this investigation, including using confidential informants and undercover officers. Like this wow. was serious. And, you know, and this happened because the parents wouldn't let up. They mm -hmm. conducted several hundred interviews. They got money like they were raising money to do evidence audits. They were like doing DNA testing. Um, another article I read said that they were testing fibers and hairs and all kind of stuff. Like they were That's really amazing. going in. And you think about, you know, this, this poor 10 year old case right. that, that, that just didn't understand. Um, so what ends up happening is on July 25th, 2014, the Luton County Sheriff's Office declared that the uh, Erica's killer had committed suicide. Now, now that's weird, right? Uh, because they uh, so they wait, wait, so they now let's bring back. In 2012, they reopened the case. By by this time, they're announcing in 2014, they're saying that the killer, they know who the killer is, but that the killer killed himself the year before. Okay, hmm. and. They would not release the name to the public. By now, the sheriff's name is Mike Chapman. He would not release the person's name to the public. They denied to specify when the suspect committed suicide because they said that if we if we tell you, then you'll know exactly who it is. Isn't that uh, the point? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's odd. pause. Because that's, that's a pause right there. Why not just say it? If the person killed themselves and is gone, why not just say, well, this is who we believe it is and this is who did it? <sighs> But guess what? 
her father, William, did go public. He said, he told the Luton Times, I was reading an article in the Luton Times, he said the killer's first name was Justin. He was in his 20s at the time of the murder, and he killed himself in 2013, um, probably making him in his 30s. Father said that on the day she went missing, they went through her journals and they found names of friends to contact and things like that to, you know, who would know their whereabouts. Now, back then, 2002, we were just starting to get into cell phones. So Mm -hmm. a 14 year old back then probably would not have had a cell phone. I know in 2002, I was a senior in college and I barely wanted to get one. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not like now with like my 13 year old has had a cell phone for like four years now. It's very different. Um, his name was in that journal. This guy, Justin, whoever this Justin, we don't, we don't ever get a last name. Okay. His, this guy, Justin is there. They said that they didn't know him, but then the father said that, that he spoke to him, that Justin called the father to see how she was doing. Hmm. What? Right. Right. (sighs) So there's this kind of like weirdness here. We're going to leave that right there. So mm-hmm. then the mother, um, the mother was one of the things she was saying, like they, the, they're saying at the, the killer called from a payphone just blocks from their home with the promise of a summer job. But how'd they get the number? Right. How would the killer get the number? And so one of the things that I found while I was researching this case was that the parents had a lot of passion and ideas about what happened, but it's hard to kind of parcel out the objectivity because they loved their daughter so much and they were just so focused on finding out what happened. Um, but the truth is, is that most of the reports say that she likely met him online and agreed to meet him to go shopping. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a summer job thing. She wasn't scammed. This was a voluntary meetup. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like wow. her parents don't want to say that because here's where it gets really interesting. Okay. Yeah. So Justin tells William, her father, that he had just returned from a European vacation and that he had not seen Erica. But the day Erica went missing, her father said that um, she was babysitting their, you know, her younger sibling. At 1 p.m., she got a phone call from a male friend that kind of lured her out the, the home with the, you know, this, this first it was the, the summer job, but then it was the promise of buying her clothes for her birthday, which was actually two weeks prior to her disappearance. Um, at the time of the primary investigations, there were some news stations that were saying she was pregnant. Uh, what? Okay. Okay. That changes a lot. Listen, listen, yeah. listen. So she's going from being precious Christian angel cheerleader girl mm-hmm. to possibly have been pregnant at the time she went missing and was found killed. Now, and now, as a reminder, she's 14. She's 14. Yes. And, he is and at the 20. time he was in his 20s. Okay. So, but this is, this was some of the reports that were going, but, you know, again, whether or not that was confirmed, I couldn't find anything that said that they did any kind of testing to confirm that she was pregnant, but like pretty much every news report was saying that Erica was pregnant at the time. Mm -hmm. So the other thing is that when they went through her journal, she was writing about her plans to meet this man, that he was coming from Europe and was going to be meeting with her. Okay. What? Yes. I'm so, mm, mm, mm. so then they talk to her friends and what they're finding out from her friends is like, oh yeah, Erica be out there all the time meeting up with dudes from the internet. Mm. Her parents had no idea. 
That's usually so, how that, it goes. Yeah, that makes exactly. sense. And then hearing that, they don't want to accept that. Exactly. Um, you know, apparently reading through her diary, she was making notes of meetings, several meetings she was arranging with older men and apparently detailing her tr- so-called trysts with them, which I don't want to call them trysts. That's how they're reporting it, because this is a 14 year old girl with older men off the Internet, you know, that are right. preying on her. Mm-hmm. And according to reports, this guy, Justin or whoever she was meeting that day, told her to keep it a secret and not to tell the parents. So they, whoever it was, whether it's this guy, Justin or whatever, knew what they were doing was wrong, Mm -hmm. meeting up with a 14-year-old girl and promising to buy her clothes. Right. Right. Okay. And then according to her friends, she was really excited, like right before she disappeared, because she was telling them about how one of her older so-called friends was coming back from Europe for a family vacation and was going to be taking her shopping. And according to another, like one of her male friends, whether it was a boyfriend or not, um, she seemed that she was um, anxiously awaiting for him to come back because he had promised to take her on a shopping spree at the local mall. And one of the reports said that um, they found a tag with a European clothing label. So maybe there was a promise like, I got you this from Europe. I'm going to bring you this clothes and then I'm going to take you shopping. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So what what's interesting is like, again, when you're talking with the parents, the parents, her mom was like, you know, I knew like her, her close friends. But I didn't know how she could have gotten connected. Again, we're going back to 2002, right? Mm-hmm. Still some, you know, not as much use of social media. I mean, I got on Facebook in 2004. I don't know when you all were on there. We ain't had no Twitter. 2002, that was still like, Two, what? MySpace. Black Planet, MySpace. Yeah. Hell, even like the chat rooms were still a thing at 2002, chat rooms and message boards were yeah. And AOL Instant Messenger. Yep. That was, you know, that was a thing. So the parents, you know, of that time, we can understand why they're not as familiar. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of one of the cautionary parts of this story. And, and so many others that we, we see is that parents not knowing who their children are talking to or spending time with. Mm-hmm. And I know, for one, I'm always asking my son questions about his friends. And as annoyed as he gets with it, he knows that I'm concerned and it's in his best interest. Um, you know, and one thing I'll recommend to parents that are listening, if you happen to have Verizon, they have the family app. Um, and it only allows your child to have 20 contacts stored in their phone and you have to add them. So every time they ask you to put somebody's number in, you could easily just ask, well, who is this? Mm-hmm. And then on the app, you could see how many texts they get and who they call in, when they text them, when they call in them. You know, you get alerts if they're texting during school days. You know what I mean? Like as a parent, there's certain things that like you want your child to have some space and some freedoms, but you still have to kind of keep a check because this world is wild out here. But I know that right. if anything happens to my son, I got at least 20 phone numbers I can call. <laughs> and, and right. like seven of them uh-huh. are family, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And I'd be like, hey, do you, have you talked to Garvey, right? Because even a lot of parents don't know their kids' unlock code. They don't know how to, you know, they don't know who they're, you know, talking to. And a lot of the kids use things like Discord and other stuff that doesn't even require phone numbers. So you just kind of have to be vigilant, right? Right. Um, So according to the father, like he's kind of making Justin out. He's saying this is somebody who preyed on and stalked young women. But there's no real evidence of that. Um, Again, I think going back to how we were listening to the parents talk, they really made her out to be like this perfect angel who does nothing wrong. And her friends were all like, nah, she's got a dark side, you know. So Right, right. And that could very well be their view of Of their child. Because that's what she showed them. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, so he's going on about like this person, Justin, prayed and stalked young women. We don't know if that's true. We don't know. It could have just been this one time. or You know, we don't know. Um, the thing is, is that folks are not still 100% convinced that Justin is the one that did it. And their main suspicion goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The sheriff office not releasing the name, the full name to the public. And so people are just like, why? The sheriff's office is saying that it would hurt the family more. But the family to this day still wants answers. Um, During the investigation, this guy, Justin, refused a polygraph test and he did not cooperate with investigators, though he eventually hired an attorney. The sheriff said that the suspect, um, had he not killed himself and the case was brought before jury, they would have likely been all based on circumstantial evidence. Because that's the thing. They had no real proof of anything. One, they didn't even take it seriously when she went missing. Mm-hmm, and then when right. they found the body, you know, they I guess they collected whatever they could at that time. But if you remember earlier, the real investigation didn't happen until a decade later. Right. They didn't, they so much doing, time has passed. So much right. time has passed. 10 years. Now, remember, she was babysitting her younger brother who was 10. The brother was then 20. Like, the memory, I don't know about you all, but I can't remember everything that happened when I was 10 years old. Right. No. You know what I'm saying? So you, you think of like all the resources and stuff that they devoted to this didn't happen until almost a decade later. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the things that about this case that I think was you know really important is to talk about the dedication of Erica's parents. And so kind of listening to them, talking to them, seeing where they're, li- they're living in this suburb, which they, you know, some reports say is a Washington, D.C. suburb, you know. What have, what have you. But they were, they were a middle-class family. They were doing all right. You know, they weren't struggling or whatever. So they had the, the class privilege, right? They had the resources to keep this fight going, which a lot of our folks don't. And they were so vigilant that this case ended up on America's Most Wanted in 2009, which was seven years after her death. Okay. And it was, it was in part because her parents refused to give up on finding, you know, the person that took their daughter from them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that was interesting about this case is one of the outcomes is that the Loudoun County created a cold case unit, um, mainly based on how passionate the parents were. And, you know, that kind of advocacy, um, it motivated local officials to do more for the missing children. They also created a child safety day, which is held annually now. And they use it to increase awareness and educate the community and parents about improving children's safety. So this is a, you know, this case is one about parental advocacy and how important it is to really, really, really fight for your children and not give up. They have a Christmas tree that they keep in their house that is dedicated to their daughter. They will talk to anybody that's willing to listen. They have done press conferences. They will, they, I mean, I've seen interviews with them on so many newspapers and what have you, and they just kept pushing and pushing, but they also had the resources to do so. They had the money to get the lawyers, to get the investigators, to do all these kinds of things when a lot of our folks don't, right? Mm -hmm. And there was never any suspicion that they were doing anything wrong, but that's not always the case. A lot of times when our children go missing, they first look at the mom, right? They look at the dad, well, was there abuse in the house? And, you know, maybe they just ran away. But in this case, this family was kind of the respectability family. Yep. And so they got, you know, they got the support and the, you know, the later support and attention that they, that all families deserved, but right. they probably wouldn't get being a lower class. Right. You know what I mean? That intersection is so important to note because when you have 
a, a black girl that goes missing and she's from a family that is of a lower social location. People don't, they don't care. They don't say anything. They don't report on it because they feel like she's not worth it. But then Mm -hmm. you see how nobody really cares when you have class either. When you have the class status, look at how long they waited. Mm -hmm. And I think I made this, this comment a few episodes ago, but a lot of times you are at the mercy of um, the DA. You're at the mercy of Mm -hmm. your local law enforcement. If they don't want to pick up a case, they won't. Mm-hmm. They won't. And as as taxpayers, as as Americans, as human beings, it is our right to say, no, you are going to do what I want you to do because you are supposed to be a public servant. Mm-hmm. Your mm-hmm. job is to do what I'm asking you to do. If I'm asking you to investigate this, you're going to investigate it. And a lot of people don't realize when when there's activists out here and they're protesting things like this, they are well within their rights Mm -hmm. to have your parents stand on a police neck and say, no, you need to investigate my daughter's disappearance. Right. And not give up like that shows that that does work. It does work. And I know it's difficult sometimes to have to keep reliving something that's painful just to get law enforcement to pay attention to you. But it does work, mm-hmm. especially right. if you have strength in numbers. But when you are poor or of a lower social location, you don't have those numbers. Right. So you mm-hmm. don't have that strength. And that's a big thing about when white girls go missing or white children go missing or even white women go missing. A lot of times they're coming from families with the resources to hire the private investigation the investigators Absolutely. to yep. go and really kind of stomp on the mayor's neck and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So they have access, and they right? Have the, they have resources and access. Right. And they have the privilege of time. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they're not worried about taking time off of work and being fired mm-hmm. and stuff like that. A lot of people, if they, a lot of people, if their kids go missing and they are lower class, they don't have that privilege to be like, I'm going to take X amount of time off work because I need to find my child. Mm-hmm. It's very much, I'm, I'm, Juggling between the two realities, I can either completely give up on this job and have no way to take care of myself, and if I have other children, them, or and com- devote my time to maybe being able to find my child, or putting it in the hands of a corrupt law enforcement that just doesn't actually give a damn. Yeah, and that, and I think that's what like there was a lot of community criticism from the original sheriff who really was very casual about this. And, you know, they did find her body. I think it was like 10 or 11 days later, you know, they found her buried in a shallow grave um, near this park. Um, And so in that time, we don't know if she was killed immediately and then buried. We don't know if she was held for a few days and then killed. Like, we don't really know much about what happened, you know, in, in that day, in that time, but her parents, really were, were reporting that they just felt that they were not getting the support. They were not getting the attention that their daughter needed. But I think what's, what this case really um, does for us, and I think this is one of the first, I think it was one of the first like national cases that addressed teenagers meeting people online. Mm. And that's why this, and the fact that it was a black girl was really fascinating. Um, but it was one of the first ones we saw that looked at, you know, the dangers of, 
these young people having these secret lives online, making arrangements and meeting up with people online, especially young girls with older men. And, you know, as much as people want to talk about, you know, fast tail girls or whatever, we all got to go back to when we were those ages and how cool we thought it was that an older guy wanted to pay attention Mm -hmm. to us. And here he is buying things. And according to her friends, this is what she did. She met up Mm -hmm. with older men and they bought her things and took her places. And apparently, you know, she was sexually active or whatever. And so who knows what was going on at home where maybe she was looking for attention outside of the home. You know, sometimes yeah. um, as I'm reading through a lot of these articles and I'm listening to the parents talking, I'm like, they, they're going kind of extra on how, you know, right. how, how good she how was. How good things were. Right. Here, and you then know? you also have to look at like the, the different framing between during that period of time when a white girl went missing because she was talking to older men in chat rooms. She is a victim. She was lured away. She was duped. But when you know you're talking about black girls, it's like, well, she was acting grown. She was yeah. acting. That's what XYZ. she did. The blame is never placed on the perpetrator. Yeah. And the framing of that, the exact same situations is completely different. And that's why I brought, you know, I mentioned uh, this issue of uh, calling it a tryst because that's how it was written mm-hmm. in the article that I was reading. And I was like, no, there are no 14 no. year olds don't have trysts. No. It's like, right. I, don't, I don't know what you what no. you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. They don't it, have trysts. Right. It's along the lines of calling a, a 15 year old a woman. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one thing that point that stuck out for me was. Well, you mentioned that she was found um, in Broad Run Creek and that they lived in like the Ashburn area. Now, if you're familiar with the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area, that section of Virginia, it's just south of the Virginia border, just south of Maryland, and it is just north of Dulles Airport. Mm-hmm. That is a primarily affluent area. Um, Broad Run Creek is like, it ain't nothing down there. Like there's nothing down there. So what stuck out to me and I, and I, I'm not sure if this was even in any of the research that you found, but when he said he flew in from Europe, Dulles is an international airport. So my question is, is if he really did come from Europe, he could have flown into Dulles, whoever this person is, if this is really what happened, um, met up with her very easily. Like Dulles is literally a few miles from Ashburn. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and there's plenty of ways to get to Ashburn from Dulles mm-hmm. and did whatever he did, you know, tossed her in Broad Run Creek and then, you know, left or stayed or whatever. When I look at situations like that, it speaks to the importance of fast movement when somebody goes missing, you have to act fast. If you live near an airport, somebody supposedly flew in and was going to come see you, and then they killed you and left you in the same exact area that you came from. You didn't even you didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You didn't go anywhere. You're in the same exact area that you were already in. Nobody expected anything bad to happen. And I think when when girls go missing, we're like, oh, well, you know, time is of the essence. They could be anywhere by now. They could be anywhere or they could be nowhere. They could be right here. Yeah. Definitely. And nobody's, and, look, nobody's looking. Right. And 
what part of me is wondering um, if, you know, the, the police's response and, you know, kind of lackluster response to this person who was a victim, uh, um, one of the people they suspected, Justin, was, was he of an upper class? He's vacationing in Europe with his family. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. living in this affluent area. D- does his socioeconomic status have to do with why, why a lot of attention wasn't paid to him? And I, I, I agree with you on that. And so one of the things I'm thinking about is that this guy is in his twenties. His name is Justin. We don't have a last name. Um, and the fact that the police didn't want to release it, I think was more of a cover up to protect the family. So I think that you're onto something, yeah. you know, and he, if he's taking her on a shopping spree, then mm-hmm. he has some, you know, he has some resources. And, you know, I think that that's what's happening is that is he's They were covering up for him and his family. And he did hire a lawyer and did take a polygraph test, which is something that rich people are told not to do. Mm -hmm. Don't take a polygraph test. Right. Right. So we have, you know, there was there was so much that was going on there. Um, And I was, you know, thinking about when the point that you made, Nikki, about being near an international airport and how those are like trafficking hubs. Right. You think about Mm -hmm. neighborhoods that are around some of those more popular international um, airports. Right. You know, we got to be mindful when girls go missing or children go missing, like how quickly it is to whisk them off to another country or something like that. That's the issue with Atlanta, you know, and, and why right. that's why Hartsfield yeah. is such a, a big hub for that. Um, and and this, I just, you know, I thought that this story um, was such a, a combination of so many things like the the middle class family. The internet, you know, kind of uh, predator thing that was just starting to become something that we were aware of at that time. And the fact that it was a cold case for 10 years that didn't really get real investigation until 10 years later when there was a new sheriff who was like, well, let's dig into this more. And the reason they had to dig into it more is because the case made America's most wanted and everybody's Mm -hmm. looking at the sheriff's office like, well, hey, what y'all doing? Mm-hmm. And right, they were coming right, right. up short. So I just, you know, I thought that this was a good case. It's it's terrible that she was killed, that she was murdered. And, you know, the, it, the family kept fighting and that they, they were able to kind of turn their pain into something purposeful, you know, to try to help the other children of the area and the other families of the area, you know, right. with the cold case unit, with the Children's Safety Day. So I thought that that was, you know, something interesting as well. Um, we, you know... <sighs> They're not all going to make it. And so some of our stories are going to be, unfortunately, ones that result with the girls having died or um, been missing. But I think it's still important to kind of look at the details of what goes into these. Absolutely. And I, I think that it's important to look at the details that can affect other people right now. Like mm-hmm. the details of her case are the details of her case. But when we look at like how she met whoever um, she was going to meet, meeting online, that's still a problem. Yes. And it's wild because it's like, it's still an issue. Um, People prey on adults and teenagers all the time online. Mm -hmm. All the time. Yeah. And it's the fact that it has not changed is startling to say the very least. Um, And I know we make jokes about like catfish and stuff like that. And it's like funny. And it's like, how did you fall for that? But the amount of time that it takes to lure a child in online is mere days. Mm. You can gain a child's trust 
between two and nine days. I can't remember the name of the study, but they did a study and it's between two and nine days. Can you imagine as a grown woman right now meeting somebody Ooh. at like the library or the coffee shop or something and nine days later, it's like, yeah, I trust you. Absolutely. What's, mm-hmm. what's popping? No. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and being a kid and, and, and I mean, your brain is not developed, developed. your... And so Aries. many people not treating you as a child. Like if you're if, if you're an adult Aries, that might happen. Guys. Go away. You know what I say? <laughs> go away. It might happen. Anyway, but I, get, I, I get what you're saying. <laughs> I understand. But, you know, a lot of a lot of the um, advice, you know, because every kid had to go through that whole um, being safe on the internet type of. um class or whatever Mm -hmm. but so much of that information doesn't get through to an underdeveloped mind a lot of it's more for their parents and adults Mm -hmm. who are able to think critically about this stuff but when it's a child and they are getting especially a child who may not be getting attention in like positive attention in school at home if they're getting it online that's an even harder hurdle to get over and yeah, to yeah. be vigilant about as a parent. My so family has, my family's been using the internet for about since I think 1994, I think is when we first got internet connection. Mm-hmm. My dad still does not understand social media relationships. Like he still, it's been 25 years, almost 26. And he's like, you met your friends where? <laughs> that don't, what? And I'm just like, never mind, Daddy. Just, just forget. It. I don't. I, yeah. I don't even know. <laughs> but so in 2002, I, you know, was just coming out of high school. So I back then, I can't imagine how a parent would just not understand their child meeting someone online. Mm-hmm. Because it was such a foreign concept. It was like, that's things that weird, lonely old people do. Yeah. Right. And, and then, that, like, that was the thought, but that wasn't the reality. Yeah. And then, as a, a teenager, are you going to tell your parent, like, are you, you don't want to explain to your parent what a meme is. Yeah. You definitely don't want to explain to them that I'm going to go to a hangout with these people I met online, or I'm going to go meet up with somebody I met online. You're just going to be like, I'm going to go see a friend. I am grown and I don't do that because I don't. <laughs> he's, he's not not going to understand. I think that he's that's real. Gonna... I think it's real. And I think, again, you know, part of why I pointed out, you know, her family's religiosity, right? This heavy, yeah. heavy Christian religion, you know, yeah. this presence that they may have been strict with her. You know, mm-hmm. because she's out there 14 years old meeting multiple men for sex and all kinds of stuff and telling her friends all about it that yeah. she, she I probably didn't start when she was 14. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there was there, there was a bit of a rebellion there. And I just also wanted to mention um, and we'll share this on our social media. This was a dark skinned girl. Yep. She mm-hmm. was chubby, a little bit chubby. You know what I mean? So. There's there could have been some other insecure issues going on and you have all these men showing you attention, you know, and I remember being that girl. I was, you know, when I was 16 and I was heavy set and I, you know, had acne and braces and felt like nobody wanted me and I had some issues at at home and you know, I got caught up with a man who was eight years older than me 
And it, it wasn't until I was a lot older that I realized that this was a predator. But at the time, this guy was picking me up in his Honda Accord, okay? Which mm-hmm. back then, okay? <laughs> That's a nice car. Your Fly. man, your man was, was driving. He had personalized plates. He had the fresh S curl, okay? <laughs> like, seriously, he was it. And mm-hmm. I just was like, wow, he is choosing me. And he is taking me places and making me feel good. And, right. you know, you don't think at the time that that is wrong. And it's not until you get older that you know that. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that was something that was happening then with the internet that just made it really explode into so much more. And mm-hmm. so just now, you know, as parents, you know, and, and others in community, if you have any young people that are in your life, you just talk to them, have conversations with them, bring it up casually. I take the boy mm-hmm. out on, you know, walks and I'm like, so, hey, what's going on with uh, so-and-so? And I'm like, mom. And I'm and like, like, she's right and you know leave the shame part out of yeah, it yeah there's no like shame. a lot of parents will do this that this sh- just make you feel awful about wanting to be desirable wanting to be popular wanting to be somebody that other people like and yeah. that will shut off communication that just shuts anybody down you don't want to talk to your parents about you met somebody or you've been talking to somebody because here come the hundred degree questions. And it's like, all of a sudden, are they just, are they saying like, I'm not worthy of being liked. And it's such an odd time for development because there's so much that we don't know or that we don't understand. And there really isn't a bridge for us because our friends don't know because we're all, we're the same age. They don't know either. Right. And and we don't always feel comfortable talking to our parents about stuff like that. And our parents sometimes don't have the language either mm-hmm. to have these type of discussions. So if you are listening and you are a parent, you have a child in your life, an aunt, your godparent, whatever, um, just have casual conversations with these people in your life about who they talk to on video games, mm-hmm. who, you know, who are their friends that they visit on animal crossing? Who are yeah. their, their, their home, Fortnite buddies. home who are their mm-hmm. Fortnite friends, their Minecrafting friends? Right. Who do they talk to in YouTube live video chats? I didn't realize that that it, was a thing. Yeah, it's I true. just found out yeah. people broadcast on YouTube and there's like a chat feature. Yep. Y'all, I am 35 years old and I had no idea that that existed until last week. I only week. know because of my son and he's all into that. That's the only reason I knew that. Yeah. I was like, why are these so, kids sitting here watching other people play video games? And then I realized and then they're, they're chatting, chatting about it. Yeah. And then they go over into their own profiles and chit chat in messages. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, whoa, it's, I had no idea. Yep. But yeah, so that was that story. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's heavy. And it's like, it's just, I mean, we really could talk about this like all day because there's been plenty of cases, you know, like this, you know, since. Yeah. But we just want people, this can't happen to black girls. They can be yeah. lured by people on the internet and they can Absolutely. get caught up in stuff. And we know that with sex trafficking being what it is, they're using the internet a lot. We just have to be hyper vigilant and just really protect our girls. Yes. They appeal to the things that we're vulnerable about. So when it's a girl who may feel like she's less than, they might be appealing to how she feels about her looks, her body, whatever. Make sure you're uplifting the kids in your life. Make sure you're talking to them. Stop finger wagging all the time. Mm-hmm. Just have a conversation. We're, we're all people. We're all people. It's really important that we 
keep our heads on swivel and take care of each other. Thanks, y'all, for tuning in another week. We really appreciate it. We will see you next week. In the meantime, um, Black Girl Missing Podcast is researched, written, and produced by us. It is a labor of love by three concerned Black women who just want justice for missing Black girls. Today's episode was written by Feminista Jones and produced by the Full Service Radio team. And you can find us wherever you listen to our to your favorite podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter is Black Girl Missing, BLK Girl Missing. Facebook is Black Girl Missing Pod. Instagram is Black Girl Missing Podcast. And you can visit our website for more information about each case. It is blackgirlmissingpod.com. And you can email us at blackgirlmissingpodcast at gmail.com with any tips, feedback, or names of girls that you would like for us to look into. We will see you next week. Please stay safe and healthy.